The first reading is Daniel 10, verses 1 to 14. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphas round his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone, gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I am about to speak to you and stand up for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time yet to come. The second reading is Daniel chapter 12, verses one to 13. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? 
The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven. And I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times and half a time. When the power of the holy people has been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, My Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Steph, thank you very much for that. If you have a Bible near you, it might be useful uh, to have it uh, open. There's quite a lot of ground to cover. And just at, the, just at the top to say, I probably am not going to be able to go into all the different details. So if you've got a burning question about something and we don't get to it, apologies. Uh, feel free to email me. I'll give you a, a stab at what I think. Uh, but if we don't get to what you're interested in, then do make use of that and send me an email. Uh, now on the screen, I think we've got a picture coming of uh, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt was president of America at the turn of the 20th century. And he was in the habit of going for a walk with his friend, uh, William Beebe, at night. And he went to Sagamore Hill. And once he got to a certain point in the evening, toward the end of their walk, he would look up and he would point to a piece of the night sky. And he would say, look there. That is the spiral arm of the Andromeda galaxy. It is one of a hundred million galaxies that we know of. Each of those galaxies has a hundred billion stars, each larger than our own. And then he'd smile and turn to William Beebe and say, now I think we're small enough. Let's get some sleep. It's probably a very good thing for someone in power and authority and influence to do every once in a while, to remind yourself that the universe is a very big place. Lots of it's out of our control, too big for us to handle or know about in all its entirety. We can't fix or know about absolutely everything. Sometimes we just have to trust. Now, I have no idea if Roosevelt was a, a Christian or, or anything else, but sometimes as Christians we have to take the same attitude. This universe is a big place, and we have to trust and rest that God has it in control. And in many ways, chapters 10 to 12 of Daniel are doing something like that for Daniel. We have seen him walk with kings and emperors, with poise and calm. He's been the one in control. He's known how to handle situations. He's responded well to everything that's gone on. He's been impressive, right? And yet as Daniel goes on and he gets given these visions about the future... I think he gets more and more unsettled. And, and last week, in chapter 9, he was shown a vision uh, from God, a, a dream from God, 
uh, which showed him that uh, when he thought there were going to be 70 years of captivity, God sort of multiplies it and says there are 77s. And Daniel is disturbed by his vision. And I think that's where we come in in chapter 10 as Daniel uh, mourns and fasts for three weeks. I, I think he does that at some point after that vision. He's confused. Um, he wants to know more. He's been disturbed by the things he's seen so far in Daniel. Uh, and mourning and fasting like that was often how people would prepare to receive a revelation from God in the Old Testament. They'd mourn and fast and pray. And it's a way of saying, God, will you please reveal more to me? And so Daniel does that. And just a note of how serious it is. It's a little incidental detail in, in verse 4 that it was the 24th day of the first month. But what the writer's telling us is, Daniel fasted through Passover. Now, Passover was the central feast of the Jewish year. It was the time they all came together to have a party. And the last thing you would want to do at a time like that is fast. And that just shows you how serious Daniel is about needing to know more, how disturbed and uncomfortable he has grown with all these visions. God, please, please reveal to me what this means. And so God does very graciously. And just to help us get our bearings in these chapters, here's a little grid for us. The, the chapters work like this. Chapter 10 to the very start of chapter 11. That's a, an introduction to the revelation, if you like. Uh, Daniel sees this vision and it, it's to introduce him to what God is going to tell him. And then in chapter 11 and the first part of chapter 12, uh, that's the content that is the information that God gives to Daniel in this revelation. And then at the end, we have a conclusion, an epilogue, both to the vision and to the book. So that might help you just see where we're going. So we start with the introduction. And the purpose and the point of the introduction is this. God is telling Daniel, Daniel, the world is bigger than you think. The world is bigger than you think. And here, as this mysterious linen man, who Ruth wants to know so much about, comes onto the scene, what we're having here is God peeling back the curtain of reality for Daniel. He's showing him what's behind the scenes, what's going on, and he's showing him the universe, the world, is much bigger than he ever suspected. And he does that as this figure, this man in linen, who's described as being made of precious stones and arms and feet of bronze and face like lightning, comes to see him. And we're told it in verse uh, 2, I think it is, that the, uh, verse 1, sorry, that the message that's being delivered is going to be about a great war. It's about a great battle. And, and God is telling Daniel, he's peeling back the curtain and showing him the real battle that's going on behind the scenes. Uh, and this mysterious visitor, this linen man, comes to tell him the message. Now, there's lots of debate about who this is. Um, some people think this is Gabriel, because Gabriel is always the one who turns up to speak to Daniel in all the other chapters. Uh, some people think that it's another angel. This figure sounds a bit like some of the angelic beings that are described in the book of Ezekiel. So maybe it's another angel. Other people think it's actually an appearance of God himself because this figure sounds a lot like the way that Jesus is described in the New Testament. Now, all those positions have slight problems with them. Uh, if it's Gabriel, why doesn't he just say it's Gabriel? He says it's Gabriel at other times. 
Uh, if it's another angel, that seems a bit weird and out of the blue. If it's God, well, later on, this figure holds their hands towards heaven and swears by the one who lives forever and ever. So that doesn't seem to quite work. So um, some people try and say it's two different people. So there's a vision of what God looks like, but the one who speaks is actually not God. It's an angel. That's trying to have your cake and eat it, I think. Um, the point is there's lots of different uh, ideas and it's important not to be too dogmatic. If you are set on one, then that's okay. I think this is one where we can disagree. Uh, for my money, I think in chapter 11, verse 1, when he says, in the first year of Darius, I came to help, I took my stand, I think that is indicating that it is, in fact, Gabriel. Because that's the last time Gabriel showed up in Daniel. So why isn't he mentioned? Why isn't he named? And, and why does he appear to look so different? Well, I think that's part of what God's doing with the vision. He's peeling back the curtain and showing Daniel how things really are. So Gabriel comes to him for once in his true colors. This is what Gabriel really looks like. Before, Gabriel's come to him in a form that Daniel doesn't find quite so overwhelming. But, but now God's peeling back the curtain and showing Daniel reality is bigger than you think it is. But if you disagree and you don't think it's Gabriel, that's fine. I don't want to fall out about it. Either way, whoever you think this is, one thing's clear. They are a powerful and impressive spiritual being. Mighty. Terrifying even. Look what happens to Daniel in verse 8 when he gazes at the vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale. I was helpless. He, he falls on the floor like jelly. This is a powerful and impressive being. And yet, verse 13 tells us that this powerful and impressive being is opposed. The prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Now, that's a little glimpse behind the curtain, like I say, that there is a spiritual war going on. Now, the Bible only ever gives hints about this. It doesn't go into great details, and I don't think it wants us to obsess about it. But it is clear that there are spiritual beings, spiritual forces that are opposed to God. And this prince of the Persian kingdom seems to be one of those. It's a way of talking about a spiritual being who, who seems to use his power to control, behind the scenes, the empire of Persia. And he opposes God and his forces and his angels. And he can even resist this linen man, this powerful, impressive linen man. There is a powerful spiritual force working against God and looking to harm his people. And what's going on in that spiritual realm is connected to what happens in our world. Because this prince of the Persian kingdom, when he makes his move, the Persian empire makes his move. He's pulling the strings behind the scenes, it, it seems. Now, like I say, we're not meant to obsess on this, but why is God revealing that? Well, I think there's a great comfort in this. Because while there are these spiritual forces that oppose God's people, what we see here is this linen man, this powerful figure says... God has sent me to do battle with these forces. Whether it's the prince of Persia here or the prince of Greece a little later on in chapter 11. God and his angels are at work defending his people, fighting this spiritual battle. And we don't see it. We don't see it most of the time. You may never know how much God has protected you from. You may never know how much God has protected you from. 
Do you ever ask that question, what's God doing? Where is he? Why isn't he helping? You may never know how he and his angels have been at work behind the scenes protecting you. I think often we take the world for granted today in a way that maybe previous generations didn't. So the Book of Common Prayer uh, has a prayer in it called the Litany. Uh, And in the Litany, people pray for all sorts of things and says, uh, here's a little sample from... uh, let me get there, from lightning and tempest, from earthquake, fire and flood, from plague, pestilence and famine, good Lord, deliver us. They, they knew that there were things out of their control in this world, and they would regularly pray to God to protect them from them. I think we've lost a little of that in the modern world. I mean, I'll put my hand up. I never prayed for deliverance from plague and pestilence before the pandemic. Did anyone? We sort of took it for granted, didn't we? Maybe one of the good things that might come out of this time is a greater sense of our reliance on God's protective care of us. And if anything, this vision just reveals to Daniel the world is bigger than you think. But don't worry, God is at work. His forces are there protecting you in this great war, this great spiritual war. Well, Daniel is completely undone uh, by this vision. He can't cope. He recognizes that he's out of his depth. The world is bigger than he thinks. And that's before anything's even been revealed. And and chapter 11 is a a long chapter which does reveal uh, an awful lot of details uh, about the future. Uh, And we can't go into all of the details at the minute, but, but here's one thing that it's showing us, chapter 11. It's showing us that history is a long game. History is a long game. Now, chapter 11 covers about 300 years, I would say, of history, maybe two two to 300 years of history, of various empires rising and falling, various battles uh, going on. The start of it uh, occurs in verse sort of 2 and 3. It tells about how the Persian kingdom is going to arise, but then it's going to fall. And at the end of verse 2, there's the kingdom of Greece turn up. And in verse 3, a mighty king arises who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. Uh, And that seems to be Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great conquers basically the whole known world. Uh, And then Alexander dies, and what happens is his empire is split up. And I think we've got a map. And there are sort of four regions in different colors there that you can see. Uh, And two of them are particularly important for the writer, uh, for Daniel. the Seleucus and Ptolemy. So the one in the sort of purpley color there is Ptolemy, and uh, Seleucus is sort of a yellowy color. Uh, at least that's the way uh, I see it. Uh, blue, blue color, maybe, for Ptolemy. Uh, the Seleucids are the king of the north, the kingdom of the north, who are talked about a lot in chapter 11. The Ptolemies are the kingdom of the south, sort of Egypt. And it's north and south from Israel's perspective, from the perspective of where Israel is, which is obviously important to Daniel. And uh, what we see is, over the next sort of couple of hundred years, those kingdoms fight each other. So the king of the north really means the kingdom of the north. It's several different kings. And the king of the south is the kingdom of the south. It's several different kings. And they fight one another in all sorts of battles and power struggles. And it's epic. But God is in control. And God knows in advance the details of the future. God isn't just saying, just trust me, I've got a plan. 
You know, people say that, trust me, I have a plan, and they give you the big picture, and this is where we're headed, but you think, yeah, but what about the details? Uh, God isn't just a big picture God. He knows intimately all the details too. Nothing takes him by surprise. Now, these kings that that rise and fall through chapter 11, uh, they have lots of similar things in common. They do as they please. They fight battles. They make agreements. They break agreements. They betray. Um, And at times, God's people get caught in the middle of this. But at the end, the king's rule comes to an end. It's only for a time. And then in verse 21 of chapter 11, another king arises, a contemptible person, we're told. And and in some ways, this king is different. He is more hostile to God and his people. He is more spiteful. But in lots of ways, he's the same. He too will do as he pleases, just like the great king of verse 3, Alexander the Great. He too fights battles and makes agreements and breaks agreements. And he too is temporary. There is still an appointed time when his reign will come to an end as well. As I say, I wish we could go into all the details. Uh, This king, verse 21 to 35, uh, seems pretty clearly to be uh, our old friend Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV, who was king of the Seleucid Empire, the northern kingdom uh, that we saw on the map. And this king, in many ways, maybe you've not really heard of him much before. In historical terms, he wasn't that much of a big deal. But for the Bible, he is the absolute model of a king who hates God. And that's because he's so spiteful and vindictive toward God's people. And because he desecrates the temple and sets up an idol in it, and he's almost in an active war and mission against God's people. It's not that they just get caught in the crossfire. This king is like the absolute epitome of evil in Old Testament times. But no matter how aggressive and how spiteful and how hostile powers and authorities are to God's people, they're still only for a time. And that's what chapter 11 says. Each king rises and falls in turn. There's lots of debate about verse 36 onwards. Because this king, some people think it's still talking about Antiochus. But it starts talking about the time of the end in verse 40. And so some people think maybe this is even looking to the future when another king, even more wicked and horrible than Antiochus, very similar, uh, sometimes you might hear him called the Antichrist, uh, when a king like that arises to do war against God and his people. Now, we can't be too dogmatic about whether it's looking back to Antiochus or whether it's looking to Antiochus or someone else. But even if it is some point in the future and another king to come, he too falls. His reign too is temporary. If you were caught up in any of these battles, in these times, these places with these things going on, it might have felt like the end of the world at any point as your land was invaded. But the point is, history carries on. Kings rise and fall. History is a long game. There are twists. There are turns. There are lots of unexpected things that happen if you read that chapter. Things that seem massive, and yet God is in control of the details. Every king in turn falls. 
I think that's a helpful thing to remind ourselves. If you're a news junkie, if you're someone uh, who, like me, likes to see what's going on in the world and you see how things go one way and then another, it's easy to get sort of lost in it and, and sort of have all our hopes and dreams invested in one person and then they let us down and, and, and then maybe something happens that really distresses us. Or maybe you're a pathfinder or a platformer uh, watching this and, and some huge things have happened in the last five years, right? And you're worried about how they're going to affect your future. History's a long game. It has lots of twists and turns. But God is in control of the details. Know that and take comfort in it. And when history is not going the way you think it should, or, or when the world seems to be turning the wrong way, don't panic. And don't get too invested, because history is a long game, but eternity is the end game. Chapter 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Why can you relax about which way history turns at any moment? Why can Christians be confident even when things seem to be going wrong? Because they know the day of verse 2 of chapter 12 is coming. The day when the multitudes will arise. And those who've trusted God will be glorious forever and shine like the sun. It's a way of saying all your wildest dreams will come true. And that day is far more important than any day that's ever gone before. That day will put all of the days into perspective and make them relative. Do we live, do we speak as if that's true? I think that's a challenge to me. When I respond to the world as it's going on around me, the way I respond, the way I speak, do I show that I really believe that day's coming? And therefore, whatever's happening today, I can deal with, and it, it, it's less important than that day. Or sometimes do I give the impression that what's going on is more important than what the Bible tells me is coming in the future. Here's a C.S. Lewis quote. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours the life of a gnat. And then he goes on to say, it's immortals with whom we joke and laugh, and we'll all live forever as eternal horrors or everlasting splendors. Our future is the future of Daniel 12, verse 2. If we trust God to live as a, an eternal splendor, You might hear Christians attacked. You might have been attacked because of the way you trust God and people think it's silly or outdated or old-fashioned. And, and the line people use is, oh, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Now, history is a long game, but eternity is the end game. And as Christians, we shouldn't worry too much about whether we're on the wrong side of history. We should care more about being on the right side 
of eternity. So what will that look like, practically? Well, as we get to the conclusion, as we get to the conclusion, Daniel's given some practical advice. Now, the vision is still mysterious, isn't it? You will have lots of questions. I still have lots of questions uh, about it. And sorry, we haven't been able to go into more of the details. But Daniel, at the end, is also still confused. Verse 8 of chapter 12. I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? (laughs) You can almost feel the desperation in Daniel's voice, right? He's had vision after vision after vision, and yet nothing seems to be all that clear to him still. He still has questions. And he's given some very good advice. Go your way, Daniel. And he says it again in verse 13. Go your way, Daniel. Go your way. Get on with life and rise on the last day. Go your way and rise on the last day. Trust that it will all work out. I'm in control. I've got the big picture. I know the details. I know every twist and turn of history, Daniel, so you can relax. This is a big universe, and it's not your job to control it. And it's not your job to know how everything's going to work out. Just go your way and trust that I have it in my hands. Will we be content to let God be God? To let God be the Lord of history? To let God be the one who knows the future, even if we don't know how every detail and every twist and turn is going to work out? Are we going to be happy to go our way, knowing that it is sure that as we trust in him, we will rise on the last day? And on that day, all of the days will be put into perspective. God has given us not every answer to every question. Daniel didn't get every answer to every question. He's given us enough to know that he's in control. He's given us enough to know he knows where history's headed. He knows where eternity will work its way out. So we just go our way and trust him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the God in control of history. Not just the big picture, but the details too. Thank you that you have set a day when the righteous will rise and shine like the sun. And the wicked will go to shame and contempt. Where all history's twists and turns will be put into perspective. Help us to know that and rest in that. And as we see a world that's too big for us to know everything or control, help us to be humble before you and trusting in your goodness, your sovereign mercy and grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.